and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today I'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the first American president to join striking workers on the picket line in Detroit today, where Biden made an impassioned speech in favor of workers getting a fair deal and a decent wage in an economy in which CEOs are paid hundreds of times more than the UAW workers who made sacrifices in 2009 but have not reaped any reward from the record profits the big three are now enjoying. Joining us is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. His latest article at Slate is Bidenomics on the Line. The auto-worker strike gives the president a chance to atone for 30 years of democratic sins. Then we'll look into the Federal Trade Commission's antitrust suit against Amazon that 17 states are joining in as the $1.3 trillion behemoth that generates more than $500 billion a year in revenues functions as a gatekeeper for e-commerce. Joining us is Barry Lynn, the Executive Director of the Open Markets Institute, who previously spent 15 years at the New America Foundation researching and writing about monopoly power. He's the author of Cornered, the New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction, and End of the Line, the Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation. And his latest book is Liberty from All Masters, The New American Autocracy versus the Will of the People. Then finally, with Trump calling for the execution of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we'll explore why Trump is so afraid of those who have seen this incompetent fool up close and personal as General Milley has, as well as Cassidy Hutchinson, who reveals more insanity and chaos in her new book, Enough. Joining us is Eric Levitz, who writes for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, where his latest article is, Trump wants his enemies to fear for their lives. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Alexander Salmon, who is a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. His latest article at Slate is Bidenomics on the Line. The auto workers' strike gives the president a chance to atone for 30 years of democratic sins. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Salmon. Hey, and thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Alex. What did you think of Biden's appearance with the auto workers on strike today? He had, there he was at the bullhorn extolling the virtues of working Americans and how they've been shafted and how they need a better deal. There was no, <laughs> there was no equivocation. He wasn't being a centrist. Um, he was all in. At least that's how it struck me. How did it strike you? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty profound moment in his presidency, actually. I think, uh, yeah, both, you know, his appearance alone at the picket line, I think is, you know, we've heard a lot of back and forth about how historic this is. 
certainly not, not something we've ever seen a sitting president do in in recent memory. I mean, uh, I, 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 all the historians I talked to had no had uh, had no memory of this happening at any other point. So him just being there, I think, is is really astounding. And then and then, as you mentioned, right, the the comments that he made were were. I think really uh, very notable as well. The the one comment he made specifically about the the sacrifices of the UAW in the wake of the auto bailout in 2008 and 2009, about how much the the, the workers gave back there, how much they suffered, and how uh, they they saved the auto industry from uh, disaster, and, and how they needed to be made whole. So, I mean, those comments I sort of mentioned in the piece that you referenced as well. Those don't come from nowhere. Those are a very, very specific reference to the acts of the Obama administration when they were structuring the auto bailout. So, um, you know, under Obama, those workers were took a, a severe haircut uh, in terms of compensation and benefits. And Biden was on the line saying, basically, it's time to undo what President Obama did less than 15 years ago. It's time to make you guys whole. It's time to fix this mistake. And, and that, I think, is a really, really notable thing for the president to say. Well, he also said... It wasn't Wall Street. It was working Americans who built the middle class. I mean, that's pretty clear where he stands, isn't it? Right. Oh, absolutely. He told the, he told the strikers to, to, to stick with it. Uh, I, again, <laughs> you know, this is just something you would not, we've not seen a president say. I mean, not a Democratic president, certainly not a Republican president. It's so unequivocal. And I think, you know, really, the you know his presence, his commentary, and even the comparison to Trump, which I'm sure we'll we'll get to, um, which this whole thing really invites. I it, it's so stark. It's it's such a it's such a robust endorsement of organized labor, of union politics. Uh, it's something Biden has said on the campaign trail, but he hasn't had that really profound watershed moment where you'd say this is this is the true example of where he is on labor, how the party has changed. And now we have it. I think we have a really, really strong indication that this is not the old Democratic Party. This is not the party of 15 years ago. And it's certainly not the party of Clinton, uh, not the party of 30 years ago either. So it's, 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 I think, you know, notable all around, definitely. So do you think it's going to translate, though, to working Americans voting, particularly those who defected and those who voted for Trump? Yeah, that that is <laughs> right. That's uh, that's the question. The question that I think we're all very curious about. There's no question in my mind that Biden's position towards labor is is you know very different than his predecessors. The question is whether you know these commitments, you know, uh, something like today and some of the policies he's enacted, his NLRB, his willingness to run the economy hot. These things are are have all been great for organized labor. The question is is two or three years of this enough in the mind of voters to counteract 30 years of policy decisions in the in the other direction. And that, I think, is really, you know, what we're what Democrats are really wondering. They're hoping uh, that it does, that, that, that this stuff resonates, that it, that it really indicates that the party is headed in a different direction. But of course, you know, in the wake of NAFTA, in the wake of the WTO, in the wake of these trade deals that, that really, really hurt organized labor and deindustrialize those parts of the country, um, you know, there's a reason we've seen those defections from from working class Americans from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And that built up slowly over many, many years. Uh, can can Biden reverse that trend in three years? Uh, it's a really tall ask. Uh, and, but I think that, you know, you, you see him today on the line. Uh, it's it's certain that he that he's going to do everything he can to do that. And, and I think that the obviously the administration is hoping that voters 
acknowledge it and reward them for it. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a serious uphill battle. But tomorrow, former President Trump is at, appearing at a non-union venue with UAW workers and retirees pitching what he's essentially trying to do, which is drive a wedge in the sense that he's pitting good jobs against green jobs and railing again. I mean, you know, he railed against windmills again, saying that they drive whales crazy. But he's also been, for some reason or other, had this peculiar objection to electric vehicles. And we know that it takes one-third less UAW workers to assemble and manufacture a electric car. So clearly Trump is trying to exploit these divisions, isn't he? Because there, there is some concern about the two-tiered nature of the investments going into EVs and EV batteries. Absolutely, right. And, and Trump has been a master of this in the past, right? It's it's really, you know, really built his campaign in 2016 was being able to exploit these wedge issues to, to sort of make explicit some of these uh, contradictions that seem to fester at the heart of some democratic policy making, um, especially in the upper Midwest and the industrial Midwest. Um, I think that that this actually, given how 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 Biden has has you know has played this one with his own appearance at the picket line, I think actually th- this sets up very unfavorably for Trump. So he is going to this this auto parts manufacturer called Drake Enterprises. It's a non-union shop. Uh, the his appearance was. Uh, organized in part by the National Right to Work Foundation. So, you know, we're talking about in- entrenched, super well-funded uh, opponents of organized labor, and and not even in in a, in a thinly veiled way. I mean, these are explicitly the enemies of of, of unionization, of organized labor. Um, and Trump's going there to make this speech right. He's going to try to triangulate about, you know, the EV revolution, these the quality of these jobs, and uh, as we sort of decarbonize and what it means. But the, the optics of this, I think, are actually fairly clear at this point. You know, the, you have the president on the picket line at a UAW strike, uh, you know, saying, you know, better wages, higher wages, better benefits for these workers. Sort of, I think, you know, connecting the or squaring the circle on 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 some of this uh, electric vehicle policy and some of the industrial policy that's been passed by the president so far. And then you have Trump who's going to the non-union shop. It's set up by this union busting organization. And he's going to try to make a very, I think actually a very difficult point about electric vehicles and, and other forms of organizing that aren't unions. And I actually think that, that this one has gotten away from the former president in a lot of ways. So if you're the White House, and if you're President Biden, you're feeling pretty good about this comparison right now because it's not a, a classic sort of Trump campaign trail 2016 appearance where he is arm in arm with union laborship and, and, uh, and winning their endorsements, he's he's you know arm in arm with the business class now, uh, and they're very opposed to to what you know Biden has done today and what he's been doing lately. But the UAW did object to Biden's nine billion dollar investment in uh, in EV batteries for Ford, and of course Biden, to some extent, in promoting uh, EVs, and and of course through the Inflation Reduction Act, he wanted to even go further and give a $4,500 consumer rebate for anybody purchasing electric vehicles from unionized factories. But that was stripped out by Senator Joe Manchin. Right, right, exactly. So 
Yeah, it's it's been a challenge, right, for 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 Biden in that sense. The 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 UAW does have issues with uh, electrification of 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 vehicles, as you mentioned. There's a question of uh, how many workers it takes to make them, um, and the, the White House has tried to make them whole in various ways. And one of them was that was this uh, union-made EV rebate. But then, of course, the president was thwarted there by Joe Manchin, who stripped that out, despite claiming all along that he, you know, is so supportive of organized labor and and made in America and all this stuff. Of course, when it comes down to actually passing a policy that supports that, he was the one who who keeps it from happening. So, so it's been interesting, right? Biden has been actually flummoxed by members of his own party, uh, by various obstacles, in sort of making an electric vehicle policy that both functions on a uh, on a climate change policy, on an electrification of the fleet policy level, but also is good for labor. And that's sort of the, you know, more or less what we talk about, we talk about like the Green New Deal. And putting those pieces together has been a challenge. And I think uh, this support now for for the strike, uh, for those workers, I think is, looks like the best opportunity for Biden to ensure that these workers get their piece of the puzzle, that the UAW does come in for in support of uh, electric vehicles and the whole sort of program fits together. So it's a critical part of it and it's one they haven't been able to totally figure out yet. And I think that this is a, is a big part now of, of making that happen. But in terms of your article, Alexander, at the slate, the auto worker strike gives the president a chance to atone for 30 years of democratic sins. Mansion and cinema are the poster boy and girl, surely, for being corporate shills. I mean, basically, Manchin is just a greedy hillbilly posing as a centrist. And the other cinema is just totally in the thrall of of wealthy donors and corporate interests. So does this mean that there has to be an overhaul in the Democratic Party? How, how could you have these two people sabotage Biden's whole agenda? It's just extraordinary. Uh, I know you've got, on the other side, you've got Rand Paul who sabotages everything. Um, and then you've got Tommy Turberville sabotaging the military. So there's a lot of dysfunction, obviously. Uh, but here we are at a moment where the Democrats have a challenge to get rid of the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Menendez. And, you know, if they don't get rid of that guy, I think they're going to shoot themselves in the foot. After all, they got rid of Al Franken of a virtually nothing compared to what Senator Menendez is alleged to have done. Yeah, I think interestingly, all all the uh, all the characters you point out there are uh, are up for up for re-election right now. So Manchin, Cinema, and Menendez are all uh, up this cycle, and I think it, it, it's very likely we will not see any of them back in the Senate. So Cinema is running a third party quest. I, I, it seems very unlikely that she's going to be able to pull that out in. In Arizona, after leaving the Democratic Party, uh, Manchin obviously is running in a in a in a Republican-dominated state. There's no polling that makes it seem like he'll be able to hold on there. And Menendez, uh, you know, for all his troubles, uh, has not even announced that he's running for re-election himself. So I think that you know it's interesting when, when Joe Biden was in the Senate. You know, this was obviously years ago at this point, but you would say he wasn't that far away from these types of. Uh, senators, just you know, ideologically, he he was a you know a real a real centrist and 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 uh, was closer to these uh, these people than he was to Bernie Sanders certainly, and now you see him you know 
on the picket line at, like he is today, you know, doing something that Bernie Sanders would certainly do as president um, and has done as a senator. And, and you see, I think that's a really great uh, articulation of just how far the party has moved under Biden, how Biden has changed himself. I mean, um, you know, this is this is not this, this is not the same. The center of gravity has has shifted and shifted uh, notably. And and, you know, the, the saboteurs in the Senate who have made <laughs> made life difficult for for Biden. Uh, I don't think that they'll be long, certainly not long for the party, maybe not long for the chamber. And um, and I think that, you know, that that it's all sort of indicating a, a, a real sea change in the way that the Democratic Party orients itself, the way its leadership thinks about policy, the way its leadership uh, behaves towards organized labor. And the the other, you know, not to get too long winded here, the other thing that seems very notable to me is is um, Biden's senior advisor on all this, Gene Sperling. Who is who is basically been an emissary from the White House to the UAW? Someone who was on his way to Detroit in a show of support for the union before Biden went himself was the same guy who uh, Bill Clinton sent to, to China to hammer out the t- the terms and conditions of of uh, that country's entrance to the WTO, which was horrible for manufacturing, horrible for union labor, and so we're seeing big changes. Is is, a, is a kind of the short of it. Uh, it's happening quickly, and I, and I think it's it's very it's much more drastic, I think, than even the most optimistic sort of uh, left wing people in the Democratic Party would have expected out of Joe Biden uh, in his first term. Well, Gene Sperling sounds like expiation, right? Just in the last couple of minutes, then the public support the UAW strike by something like seventy five percent margin. So, it seems to me that this is a no-brainer for the Democrats to identify themselves with unions and with working Americans. And as Biden said today, it was not Wall Street, but working Americans who built the middle class. And that's the whole story of the UAW. People came out of poverty and the working class and had a good middle class life. And uh, there's the example. So it seems like a no-brainer. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, Exactly. It's it's one of those things where th- there have been many, many times in democratic politics where you tear your hair out tr- trying to figure out why they don't just do the, the popular thing, the thing that makes the most sense, the thing that, you know, is is supported by so many, so many Americans, voters and non-voters and Democrats and independents and even Republicans sometimes. And uh, and now they're doing that. And, and that, you know, it seems like a small thing. It's not a small thing. They've, they've, there's long been an aversion to stuff like this. And I think that you know the one president that, or the one sort of point of comparison that I think comes to mind, which is maybe a good point to end on, is uh, is actually uh, President Truman, who in the in the 40s there was a, a UAW strike, consequential strike, and Truman, who was very very unpopular at the time, not unlike Biden, didn't go to the picket line, but but produced a study that uh, that showed how much uh, the big auto manufacturers could raise wages without raising prices, and this was thought to be a a, a huge benefit for the UAW for those striking workers. They ended up, you know, securing a, a great new contract and, and built the UAW in the way that we talk about it now, the sort of backbone of middle class prosperity. And Truman, you know, Truman managed to win re-election despite being very, very unpopular. And so I think Biden probably has that in the back of his mind as well uh, as a president with a very low approval rating, uh, but who still is hoping to, you know, pull off a something of a miracle here and win re-election. Uh, and I, I think he's, you know, I think it's a good example to follow. And, and, you know, it worked once and maybe it'll work again. Well, Alexander Salmon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Salmon, who is a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. And his latest article at Slate is Bidenomics on the Line. The auto workers strike gives the president a chance to atone for 30 years of democratic sins. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Federal Trade Commission's antitrust suit against Amazon that 17 states are joining in. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barry Lynn, the Executive Director of the Open Markets Institute, who previously spent 15 years at the New America Foundation researching and writing about monopoly power. He's the author of Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism, and The Economics of Destruction, and End of the Line, The Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation. And his latest book is Liberty from All Masters, The New American Autocracy Versus the Will of the People. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barry Lynn. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Barry. And it's a pretty significant day in terms of antitrust, isn't it, with the Federal Trade Commission, uh, in particular headed by Lena Khan, who rose to fame as a Yale Law student in 2017 when she published a article arguing that America's antitrust laws have failed uh, to adequately stop Amazon. She made herself an enemy of Amazon, which is a $1.3 trillion uh, corporation. So what's your sense of the, the fact that the FTC and 17 states are suing Amazon under antitrust? Well, you're right. It's an absolutely great day for American democracy. It's a great day for the American economy. It's a great day for American consumers, uh, you know, because uh, Amazon, uh, you know, we, we tend to look at it as this incredible convenience. You, know, you go online, you see some products, you assume it's the lowest cost, you hit a button, and then a couple of days later, there it is at your front door. But the fact is, is that this corporation you know, they've been manipulating how people engage in business with, with each other. They've been sort of storing away all this information. They have been uh, uh, basically driving up prices surreptitiously. And we, they have uh, been uh, controlling um, large parts of how business is done in Washington for a number of years now. So this is a huge blow in favor of democracy in America. And Lena Khan, of course, has made it clear, just to quote her, Amazon functions as a gatekeeper for e-commerce. And that really sums it up, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there is no other corporation that is even remotely as powerful as, as Amazon when it comes to the consumer realm online for doing business online and they get more powerful every day uh you know but in, and one thing is like we actually know you, you mentioned lena coming uh to uh the four in uh, with her paper in 2017 uh you know uh, lena worked for open markets from 20 
11 until 2014 when she went off to Yale. And then she worked for us again uh, after she got out of Yale for a year. Uh, yeah, so this is for us at Open Markets. Uh, this is a really special day because this is something that, uh, uh, you know, we uh, in tandem with Nina Khan have been preparing for since 2011. And the Department of Justice is also pretty busy, isn't it, in terms of antitrust activities? They're already yes. taking on Google. They've also launched an antitrust lawsuit against Meta, which owns Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, Zuckerberg, of course. So there's a movement underway. So what's your sense of the, of the trajectory here? Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh enormously important the fact that this is just what we saw today with the FTC's case against uh, uh, Amazon uh, is one part of a much broader set of actions. You know, the DOJ actually has two cases against Google right now. They have this case, which they just began two weeks ago uh, uh, here in Washington against, um, you know, Google for its monopolization of search. But they ha- and, and that's an enormously important case itself. But they also have this other case, which, uh, turned, uh, which uh, AAG Canner, Jonathan Canner, the head of the antitrust division, filed against Google himself earlier this year uh, that is aiming to break the company up, is aiming to, uh, to cut out from inside of Google its control of online advertising, which is really the core of much of its power that it wields over the, uh, the internet uh, uh, economy. Uh, and uh, uh, as you mentioned, there's, these, there's a number of other cases. And this is actually, it's all connected to what's going on in Europe. We've seen uh, uh, these enormously important set of laws that have been uh, passed by the European uh, uh, Parliament. Uh, they're being enacted by the European Commission. They're being enforced by the European Commission. Uh, we're seeing actions at the state level here in, in, in the United States. We're seeing actions in, at the state level in Europe, in Germany, in France, in the UK. We're seeing actions in, in South Africa, in India, and, and Brazil. And uh, so this truly is a movement. It's now become a worldwide movement. It's a movement for democracy against autocracy. Uh, and, uh, you know, so and one thing is anybody who might be a little worried about, uh, you know, what's going to happen to Amazon uh, is people should understand that Amazon itself is not going to vanish the day after we win this case. There's going to be something called Amazon online and you will actually be able to get better service, lower prices uh, and, uh, and more choice in the online system that we are building now using the this antitrust power. So what are the competitors then, Barry? Oh, that remains to be seen. The thing is, mm-hmm. is that when you have a monopoly, um, it's, uh, um, you know, what you have is uh, you don't have competitors. So the case that this is going to, is, is that they have brought, um, this is actually... Uh, one of the steps towards making it easier for rivals to get into the business. Uh, but the other thing is that, you know, Amazon stuff is still going to, some aspects of Amazon will still be around. It's just that they will operate differently. They'll be safer for democracy. They're not going to be spending so much of their effort and time manipulating us. 
What they're going to be doing is they're going to spend more. Uh, the business model is going to be focused more around service and less around exploitation and manipulation. So this company that makes five hundred billion dollars a year, Amazon, clearly is not going to go away. And are they going to continue to make five hundred billion a year? Oh, I don't think they'll be making that much now. Uh, but then the thing is, is that um, you know the thing, it, monopoly itself. Sometimes it's, it's natural, it's inevitable. I mean, in railroads, in the telephone system, in uh, uh, you know your local uh, ga- uh, provision of gas or electricity, you have monopolies. So a monopoly per se is not bad, but monopoly unregulated is bad. And what we're seeing here is this action today is they're they're they're, they're suggesting that they're going to ask the court for structural fixes. That means they're going to maybe break up parts of of Amazon from other parts. Uh, But there may be parts that remain very powerful. But the thing is, if a part of Amazon remains very powerful, like the platform where you actually do the deals, if you regulate it differently, uh, what happens is you get rid of the dangerous parts of those power. You know, so right now it's like if you go on online and Amazon, they're basically controlling who's how you're doing business. If you go to buy a book on Amazon, Amazon's going to uh, there's a good chance Amazon's going to try and steer you into buying a different book, a book that they can make more money off of. They they may try and steer you away from buying the book you actually want to buy. That kind of manipulation is dangerous. It's dangerous to you as a citizen. It's dangerous to you as an individual. What they do is they're actually changing what you read. They're changing what you think. They're changing you know, how you act. And they might not be doing it every day for political reasons, but it has a political effect, this business model of theirs. Uh, and uh, so depending how this case comes out, that dangerous abuse of power, that, that use of their, uh, their monopoly platform power to manipulate people, that goes away. And what you have afterwards is a, uh, a system in which the buyer and the seller, they use Amazon to connect and do deals with each other. So we can end up with a much more free and open internet for you and me. So is there any way that the brick and mortar companies that have already been put out of business, like a lot of bookstores have been put out of business, is that just the way it is with the changing creative destruction, yeah, I, mean, I think? Is. Isn't it one of the terms yeah. in capitalism? I mean, in other words, yeah. you're saying that they've cornered the market. There's no two ways about it. And they've used their market power to, to basically crush competition and bleed small businesses, exploit their workers, take advantage of consumers. Now, e-commerce, though, itself, which they're the gatekeepers, it can be a really dynamic platform or sector, can't it, with various players vying to attract both sellers and shoppers. So now it's dominated by a single firm. But what you're saying is it could really get so much better for the consumer. Yeah, and the thing is, there are other tools that, you know, uh, if we actually want, and we should want, all of us should want to have more choice in stores in our neighborhoods. We want to have physical stores. There's certain things where we hugely benefit by having physical stores. Obviously, when it comes to food, it's like there's no way that we're going to get the most of our food, you know, from 
clicking on buttons online. Uh, yeah, when it comes to drugs, if we, if you need a drug, you need it now, you need it today, and you need it nearby. Um, you think about like a book. You mentioned bookstores. You know, sometimes if you walk into a bookstore and you see a book that you want to buy, and uh, you know. Uh, do you really want to like put that book down and then click online and have to wait two or three days for that book to arrive? Or do you want to be able to walk away with that book? Because it's the, in the, the price in the store is the same as the price online. Um, you want to be able to walk away with the book that you already hold in your hand and not feel obliged to go online and buy it. And it's like, these are all things that we can do through law to, make the world of retail work better for us. These are all things that we used to do in this country. I mean, the, you know, this issue about like the pricing of books, you know, we've gotten used to Amazon loss leading books, uh, books that it chooses to, uh, to loss lead on, you know, so, to sell for lower price, uh, like super low prices uh, in order to sort of uh, drive their physical bookstore rivals out of business. In the old days, uh, the, the price at every retailer was the exact same. There was no change in the price. There was no alteration in the price. It was a universal price. And that meant that the retailers couldn't manipulate the, uh, the sellers or the buyers by playing with the price. Uh, that's like a, the kind of uh, fix that we could put into place tomorrow. Uh, so the, uh, right now, this is uh, this pathway we are on, this revolutionary change that we have begun, if we are smart about it, we can also use it to make our lives more convenient by putting more things at hand's reach away from us in our own community. Well, and you mentioned uh, supermarkets and buying food. <laughs> Amazon has, has taken over Whole Foods, so they've also bought One Medical, a chain of primary care practices, uh, the Roomba manufacturer iRobot, uh, movie studios, MGM, etc. So they're definitely in the retail market as well as controlling, uh, essentially being the gatekeeper of e-commerce, which is uh, just in the last couple of minutes then, Barry, as soon as Lena Khan took over the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, as soon as she was sworn in as the FTC chair, Amazon petitioned for her to recuse herself from antitrust matters, which is exactly what she's doing now today, bringing this suit against uh, Amazon along with uh, 17 uh, states. So they've really been at war with this woman, right? So given this, the battle lines are now clear, you at least given me the impression, Barry, that she's going to win. And if she wins, we win. Yeah, and I think that the, the battle lines, you know, this is just the beginning. As many cases as we've already mentioned, this case against Amazon, the, the DOJ cases against Google, all of the different actions in all these different countries around the world, this is just the beginning. Because, you know, what happened is that we... This is, this is how we used to run the economy for more than 200 years, from 1776 until 1981, until Ronald Reagan walked into the White House doors in 1981. We used competition policy to make the world safe for democracy, to make the world safe for every American when it comes to the political economy. 
And then for the last 40 years, we turned the keys over to the most powerful, the most rich, the most manipulative, the most, uh, you know, sort of, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 rapacious of people and corporations. And we forgot, we totally forgot how to sort of run an economy that works for us. We're now relearning how to do that. These, uh, these actions are the first actions towards rebuilding the type of society, the type of democracy that was promised in the American Revolution, that was promised in the Constitution, that was be, we began to perfect with the overthrow of slavery and the overthrow of Jim Crow 100 years after that. This is the... the this is a step towards the kind of true democracy that has always been the American promise, and we're going to like build that now. Well, Barry Lynn, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Barry Lynn, who's Executive Director of the Open Markets Institute, who previously spent 15 years at the New America Foundation researching and writing about monopoly power. He's the author of Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism, and The Economics of Destruction, and End of the Line, The Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation. And his latest book is Liberty from All Masters, The New American Autocracy versus the Will of the People. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Trump's call for the execution of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we'll explore why Trump is so afraid of those who have seen this incompetent fool up close and personal, as General Milley and Cassidy Hutchison have. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Eric Levitz, who writes for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, where his latest article is, Trump wants his enemies to fear for their lives. Welcome to Background Briefing, Eric Levitz. Yep, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, your article uh, begins with uh, last Friday, the Republican Party presidential frontrunner suggested that America's top general deserved to die. In a post on Truth Social, Donald Trump accused Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, of committing treason, quote, an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death, death in caps. So this is obviously madness, uh, but unfortunately we're getting used to it. Is that the problem, that Trump has just normalized the most outrageous behavior, going after the country's number one leading military officer, wanting to execute him or thinking he should be executed? Is this the problem, Eric, that we're sort of just numb to this insanity? Yeah, I think that... I think that that's part of the problem. I think that, you know, one of the things that my piece is about is the fact that that just Trump has been saying really not just crazy things, but but things specifically that seem liable to generate 
threats of violence or, or violent actions. So in this case, saying that, that Mark Milley basically deserves to die. In other cases, you know, suggesting that the prosecutors and law enforcement officials who are investigating him are a cancer on the country that threatens its very survival and that they must be dealt with. And he's making these threats in a context where he knows that um, that many of his supporters are being inspired by this rhetoric to make violent threats against the people that he is, uh, you know, targeting in this with this inflammatory language. So the the judge in, in the case in which he's being accused of illegally uh, trying to overturn the 2020 election received a death threat a day after he attacked the officials in that case. We also saw one of his supporters with a body armor and a gun casing Barack Obama's private residence a day after Trump publicly shared that address. And so we've seen a bunch of things like this, and, and it hasn't really registered that much in the headlines. And I think that's partly, as you said, because by this point, Trump has been doing similarly outrageous incendiary things for seven years now in our politics. And at a certain point, it just becomes old news that the leader of the Republican Party is interested in fomenting political violence and says all kinds of crazy authoritarian things like, for example, this week that um, he's going to investigate NBC News for treason if he wins re-election or, or returns to the White House, rather. I think another factor, though, is actually sort of an ironic consequence of the Twitter ban is that I do think if Donald Trump were saying the exact same things that he's been saying on his social media site, Truth Social, if he'd been saying those things on Twitter, where the nation's reporters, cable news producers and editors gather every day, I think all of this would be getting a lot more coverage. I think one consequence of exiling him from Twitter is that the insanity that he uh, you know, emits on a daily basis is less visible to the general public than it than it used to be. But he's been let back on Twitter, hasn't he? He just doesn't use it because of his own platform, right? Yes. Now he's uh, sorry. I mean, I think that so the ban was the impetus for him to found his own social media site. But now, yes, Musk has lifted the ban. Uh, but Trump, I believe, is part of that site. Is I think he's in addition to his business interest in getting people to use the site, I think he might be contractually obligated to post only there, though I'm not 100% on that. But yeah, yeah. Well, I'm beginning to wonder, though. I mean, I've I've interviewed Miles Taylor uh, a number of times, and he was the first insider in the Trump White House to break ranks uh, and publish anonymously under the title of Anonymous at the New York Times, so the first warning about how unfit for this office Trump was because he was witnessing this incredibly dangerous, stupid, ignorant man completely out of his depth and making all kinds of crazy suggestions and orders, etc. And then you've got all the, all the others, you know, the so-called adults in the room who have, some have gone public, some haven't. His first chief of staff... General Kelly has has recounted some of the most hair-raising uh, requests on Trump's part to shoot pregnant Mexican women crossing the border in the legs, etc. Now you have Cassidy Hutchinson 
last night on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow really starting to explain, and apparently her book does so, exactly what goes on in this completely dysfunctional, crazy White House, particularly towards the end, around January 6th. So is he going after Milley? And he certainly seemed to be, his attack on MSNBC seemed to be about his fears of what Cassidy Hutchins is going to say. So is that motivating Trump that the people who know that this guy is a complete fool and an amateur and should never have been anywhere near the Oval Office. Is that what threatens him, do you think, Eric? Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Um, I mean, certainly it's true that it's kind of remarkable how nearly unanimous veterans of the Trump administration are in their negative assessment of Trump. Not all of them have made that public, but, but many have. And others have had their views, their true views, conveyed by subsequent reporting and books like um, Cassidy Hutchinson's, but also like the one by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa uh, and several other tell-alls about the the Trump administration. So, yeah, I mean, I think it should be a liability for him that that it's not just Democrats, but that almost everybody who has actually worked with him personally and no longer has a pressing interest in maintaining their status as a Republican in good standing uh, will tell you that the man is is completely unqualified for presidential power, both because of his authoritarian temperament and because of his, you know, just incompetence. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he's been lashing out. I mean, I, I think we've seen, to the extent there's been any single trigger for the uptick in radicalism in Trump's public remarks, it is the indictments, I think, right? Um, it was principally after those the first indictment came down in New York last April and then the, the subsequent ones that, that Trump has really ramped up his attacks on the FBI, the Department of Justice, all the prosecutors that that are, are threatening, you know, his his very freedom. And it's since that point, since the first indictment came down, that they've seen a 300% increase in threats against uh, FBI officials and, and their families, according to the New York Times. So, yeah, I think that these tell-alls, uh, definitely when he sees that come across uh, his cable news channel, um, whatever he's watching on television, certainly he reacts to that. And, and I think it's plausible he was reacting to that MSNBC coverage, but I think he's also reacting to the more immediate and, and profound threat that's posed by, you know, these legal cases that, that could very well land him in prison. So without venturing into amateur psychiatrics, Eric, it seems to me that Trump is a sort of weak, strong man uh, who's obviously a complete fraud. He was never the billionaire that he sells himself as. And uh, his whole show, The Apprentice, propelled him into the sort of public arena as as a businessman, but it was obviously completely fatuous and fraudulent. So is it possible that somewhere there's a panicked man inside that corpulent orange person that's terrified uh, that people will will find out 
what a fraud and what a joke he is because the people that serve with him, you know, make it clear that the guy's a complete fraud and an idiot and doesn't know what he's doing and should never be in the Oval Office. And the most polite thing that General Kelly says, what well, the American people have to, have to reconsider how they choose their political leaders. But his base think he's a, he's a hero and a strong man and a, a millionaire and he's got an attractive wife and all this stuff. So is it possible, do you think, to smoke out that terrified person inside this fraud that knows he's a fraud? Or am I just... <laughs> I know he's, his niece has written books about him and she's a psychiatrist, so I probably should shut up. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, have psychiatric insight into Trump. I would say that, I mean, I, I don't think it is a stretch to suggest that many of Trump's public actions and remarks bespeak insecurity. Generally speaking, we don't associate people who are very secure in their self-image with being completely intolerant of criticism and responding to criticism by just vicious character assassination, right? Or, you know, with just monitoring as acutely as Trump does all media coverage of him. Again, not a psychiatrist, but I, I think it is very difficult to look at Trump and not conclude that he has some kind of narcissistic personality disorder. And I do think that over the course of the past decade, I kind of think we've seen enough of Trump and gotten enough of his just direct unmediated remarks, thanks to social media, that we might have more access to his interiority than a psychiatrist would to a typical patient upon a, a first or second visit. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's probably, you know, some insecurity deep down there. There's definitely a really dysfunctional personality and character. I, I don't think he engages the world socially in a remotely healthy way. But where delusions of grandeur give way to repressed knowledge of his own fraudulence, I, I don't know. Hmm. Well, it was pretty obvious though, from the very beginning because one of the first things that happened and it was his inauguration had a pretty paltry crowd. That's right. Uh, and he just insisted that, that that there were just millions more people than there were, just and forced his f press secretary to go out and say that it was the biggest crowd in history, <laughs> ever, ever. You know, then when he made his first speech to the United Nations, he he said, you know, I'm the greatest president in the history of America, and the whole General Assembly laughed at him. Who does that? It's just a, it's amazing what this country has put up with for this long. And it's just mind-boggling that he has so much support when you would think that he would would have been laughed out of town long ago. Uh, yeah, it is it's remarkable. Um, and I, But I, I think, you know, the, the absurdity of the situation shouldn't uh, blind us to the fact that, that he really does have a, a very decent chance of, of becoming president again based on uh, all available polling uh, at this moment. And you mentioned absurdity. Nothing is more than absurd than shutting down the U.S. government. But, but Trump is calling on his friends at the, in the House Freedom Caucus to do that. Shut it down, he's saying. Shut it down. That I find amazing that 
that's our politics today. So he's had a pretty profound effect, has he not? Uh, yeah, he, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's a, always this tangled question of um, to what extent Trump is generating Republican extremism versus Republican extremism leading to the rise of Trump. So, you know, before he runs for president in 2016, we already have the experience of having Republican Congress members effectively sabotaging the functioning of the federal government uh, out of a refusal to accept the fundamental, very basic compromises that, that, that one needs to accept under conditions of divided government. So that, you know, is not not all Trump's doing. The fact that Republican the Republican House right now appears poised to shut down the government out of protests of the fact that a democratically controlled Senate and a democratically controlled White House is not letting it dictate terms on policy to it, uh, to them, you know, that is profoundly dysfunctional, but, but not entirely attributable to Trump. Although, as you say, um, he is at the moment encouraging the most, uh, radical fringe within the House Republican caucus. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Eric, is your article at the New York Magazine, Trump wants his enemies to fear for their lives. Again, when you're dealing with a bully and a tyrant or a wannabe dictator who is also a joke, power is what you give to other people and, and fear is what you, how you respond to other people. Is there a way for people not to be afraid of this guy, even though, of course, he's... I guess you have to be afraid if he's going to sick his MAGA morons onto you uh, who are heavily armed with assault rifles. That makes it more serious, does it not? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is a serious thing. I, I think that um, it's nevertheless craven for, you know, the thing that I cite in the piece is this recent revelation that Mitt Romney told uh, his biographer that, Multiple congressional Republicans told him after January 6th that they wanted to vote for Trump's impeachment, but felt that they couldn't because it would potentially put their families in danger of, of you know, violence of getting killed. You know, I think it's a little craven for those lawmakers not to vote on principle there. The threat isn't negligible, but, you know, they have access to pretty decent security. And a lot of members of Congress did take that vote. And, you know, they have not been harmed. So so I think overall, you know, we, we need to take a certain level of risk uh, to fulfill our social responsibilities in some situations. I do think that there are many bad things about the fact that there are more firearms in circulation in the United States than there are people. But one of them is that it makes this sort of flirtation with political violence and these threats of political violence a lot more potent because there's there's just, you know, so much uh, physical capacity to commit mass casualty acts of violence you know, latent in the country and, and all it takes is one person with, you know, an assault rifle to, to really, you know, profoundly change 
for national life. And so, you know, I, I think the threat is real, but ultimately, you know, we, we need civic minded leaders to defy that threat. And we need the legal and judicial system to hold people accountable who participate um, in these sort of violent threats. You know, we, I mean, I think the way to neutralize this threat is to, you know, prosecute insurrectionists, as we've done with the January 6th rioters, and, uh, you know, to, to hold Trump legally accountable for any crimes that, that he has committed. Well, Eric Levitz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yep, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Eric Levitz, who writes for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, where his latest article is Trump Wants His Enemies to Fear for Their Lives. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.